and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and I am delighted to welcome Dr. Ramana Ramzan, a lecturer in the Department of Applied Video Games, to talk about her career in academia and about representation in video games. Romana, thank you very much for joining me on today's show. Absolute pleasure, thanks for having me on. We mentioned you're a lecturer in video games. Can you tell me about your role within the university? Yeah, so uh, I've been uh, a lecturer in game design for um, over for a long, long time now. <laughs> and um, I teach on the game narrative module, which introduces uh, students to the theory of and practice of storytelling and how you sort of apply it to interactive gaming, but also how stories in general are a very important way to engage with audiences. Um, so irrespective of whether you're working on a video game, whether it be an app or something, um, it's a very, very powerful tool um, to connect us emotionally. I also teach on the Integrated Project 2 module, and that gives students the opportunity to develop a game, and it's based on a realistic creative brief. It's a very practical hands-on module and it showcases sort of the best of what the games industry has to offer. Um, so it gives students the opportunity to explore their craft in greater detail, but also in a very innovative manner because they have this sort of creative license to do what they like with that brief. So we, we try not to put in too many constraints. So those are uh, primarily the things that I teach on. I also alongside that supervise other students as well. I have um, a couple of PhD students whose work I'm supervising at the moment. And then I also get involved in outreach work as well. That's incredible. That all sounds very, very interesting. One of the things that you mentioned there that I'm, I'm keen to explore further, you talk about how to teach storytelling and how to put a narrative into a video game. What is the theory behind that? How do you do something like that? <laughs> um, to distill it very uh, into, uh, I think to distill it into a few sentences is quite difficult, but we, we look to sort of um, the traditional ways in which storytelling has been taught in other mediums. Uh, but when you apply it to games, it's very, very different because games by their very nature are different. It's an interactive medium, it's not a passive medium. So what we do is we look at how stories have been told over centuries and how when it comes to the medium of games, it all changes and why certain techniques work better to certain types of games are more suited to them. Uh, whereas other techniques are, uh, you know, not as well suited. So there are things like your hero's journey, which has been taught since I think the beginning of time. Yeah. But you know, the, the hero's journey can in certain instances work really, really well. Um, but in other times it doesn't because the player is making certain decisions and you know they don't necessarily tend to follow the typical storytelling arc in a game mm -hmm. as they would say when they're watching or consuming a different type of medium like films so it's 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 teaching them about all these various techniques that they can use and also to be uh more aware of what works best for the type of experience that they're trying to deliver as well what about your outreach work can you talk a bit more about that sure so my outreach work is something that i'm quite passionate about and it's trying to encourage greater representation and a diverse representation in games. Mm. Um, so since I started teaching and certainly when I was a student on, on the undergraduate course back when I was at GCU, there were next to no women on the course. You know, so it's, 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 it's been a problem and that's something that I've been trying to address. So a lot of the things that I do involve either speaking with schools to try and you know increase awareness about not only the fact that you know this industry exists and 
and we need you know women to come forward and we need uh, marginalized groups to come forward um, but it's also trying to provide sort of positive role models people that they can sort of um, identify with as well um, because oftentimes you know they might not choose a career path just because they feel that it's not for them so a lot of the outreach work focuses purely on trying to have greater representation coming through we'll come on and talk about that in greater detail Romana but you've mentioned about you studying at Glasgow Caledonia University we'll jump back even further than that how did you first get into video games my first memory of playing video games, I think I must have been about four years old, four, four, four and a half. And uh, we were living in Pakistan at the time. And um, it was my brother who's uh, he's a couple of years older than me. So he was into video games. And uh, naturally, it's one of those things that, you know, as siblings, you tend to do what the other one's doing. Yes. And um, <laughs> that was sort of my foray into the whole games industry at the time. And I remember playing Space Invaders and there was this other... <laughs> handheld game that he had and I know that there were pandas in it and there was some sort of skiing involved but beyond that I can't really remember much I know it was addictive because we constantly be tussling sort of back and forth um so that was you know when I first sort of experienced games and I saw that this thing was out there and then from there we then moved to Italy and that's when I was introduced to the Nintendo so the NES was out back then and uh, it was Super Mario, which just completely changed my life. Yeah, um, still, and then the still, game. Still fun. Still a really oh, absolutely, game. absolutely. I mean, the way the, the, the games evolved. I mean, I've got a son just now, and he also started playing games same age that I did. I think, in fact, he was a bit younger. He's five just now, but he's playing Super Mario Odyssey on the Nintendo Switch and absolutely loves it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's that same sort of joy. I remember experiencing when I was a young girl and, and seeing <laughs> that now in him. So, absolutely, one of you know it is one of my favorite games but i mean it was so it was the game boy and then uh, tetris as well was another yeah. uh, game that i remember spending hours just playing it was incredibly good fun and addictive um and i also remember at that time you used to get these um it was the nintendo game and watch so it was that handheld i don't know if you're familiar with it or not but it was like a flip <laughs> in a game console and it had donkey kong on it and i absolutely loved it and i remember like my mom it was away on a holiday and she came back and she brought that for me so that was my early sort of memories of playing games and it was actually a very very social experience because I know games often get tarnished with the it's a, you know an activity yeah, that you play in isolation and yeah um, but even back then you know it, it was a very social sort of activity because living in Italy while learning the language uh, you know it was hard to communicate with other kids so games were like this way of forming connections, forming social connections. So while, you know, I couldn't speak the language and those kids can speak language I was familiar with, we could sit together, start playing games and just, you know, be comfortable in, 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 in that. So uh, they were definitely a very sort of powerful influence in my life and an influence for, I guess, a very positive sort of childhood upbringing, um, especially considering we moved a lot. And, you know, sort of after every three years, we would we would move around. And that was because of my, my dad's job. But games were like the one constant in my life from a very young age. So, yes. So that's, you know, so it started at a very young age. And, and my life and video games have been very intertwined. So what's your favourite video games then? <laughs> um, I would say Super Mario, definitely. Um, it might sound a bit of a cliche, but for me, it's it, it holds very powerful 
positive memories from my childhood. It's very nostalgic. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that reason, it's always going to be, you know, my favorite game. And every time anyone plays Super Mario, so when I see my son playing it, I'm always sort of transported back to my own childhood. <laughs> so absolutely, hands, yeah, hands down. We're talking about like games like Super Mario and Donkey Kong, and, and we're both reminiscing about them, and we can still yes. look back and see these games are really good. What makes these games so good, even though they were made in the 80s, early 90s? I think it's it's the Nintendo magic, isn't it, at play, that they've got this universal appeal that irrespective of generation, you know, those games are still magical. They hold this charm. They have this, you know, the barrier to entry isn't hard. It's not difficult. Yeah. These games are accessible. I mean, my son, um, I've got the small sort of NES console that, you know, they brought out a few years ago. And um, he's, mm. he's playing Nintendo on that, and he's taken to amazingly well you know like it's very very simple for him to to, to navigate through so uh, it's i mean it's a number of things you know the, the the game is well designed the levels are well designed the music is fun it's very mm -hmm. playful by nature and um even when you sort of you know you die and you have to restart it's um it's not like a horribly frustrating death <laughs> uh, you know it still brings a smile to your face and just the way that you inter interact with characters i think i mean i've noticed him become frustrated because um, the Mario of old is not so generous or forgiving when you do uh, lose a life, you know, three lives and then you're back to the very, very beginning, which was annoying. Um, whereas now Super Mario Odyssey, it's a bit, you know, if he, if he dies, his lives will regenerate and he resumes or respawns to that same point. But, you know, they, they I think they were very easy games to, to sort of get into and just very playful by nature. But that sort of reflects the Nintendo ethos. It's always mm -hmm. been there and it's always been about you know, kids or young people having fun doing what they're doing. So at what point did you decide to pursue video games as a career? That was late, actually. Considering how early I got into playing the games, the point where I decided that I could actually pursue a career path in this was much later. So it was in uh, when I was completing my undergraduate degree. I was in my fourth year. And um, even at that point, I wasn't aware that you know you could pursue a career path in this industry so at that time which wasn't actually very long ago most of the universities here in the uk didn't really offer a degree program in games and uh, so you know at that time it was all it related but nothing specifically that focused in on games and for my honors year i was actually going to pick a subject on i think it was hci mobile phones or something and part of that was because you know, I was thinking ahead of like the job industry and I wanted to do something that would allow me to, to be able to be more sort of attractive to employers in terms of doing something that they would find was also quite interesting. And uh, I was having a look through the topic booklet and there was a subject area of games and I thought, oh, this is really interesting. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a passion of mine, always has been. And wouldn't it be great if I could do this? Uh, one thing that I really enjoy. And I remember discussing it with my parents and uh, they said to me, you know, are you sure you're making the right decision here? Because how will you use your dissertation, you know, to, to try and get a job and everything? So, you know, so I, I, I did that and it was towards the end of my dissertation, I submitted the research for a games conference that was taking place in Canada at the time. And uh, the abstract was accepted and uh, the university was great in sort of supporting myself and there was two of my other colleagues uh, to go across and attend the conference and present our work. And that was my first experience of the industry, albeit through an academic lens. But, you know, here I was in this room surrounded by games academics and uh, people who've been, you know, pursuing 
a career in this area for quite a long time actually and that was that completely took me by surprise and that's when I knew that this was where I wanted to be um, so when I came back then I enrolled onto the postgraduate diploma on in games technology and upon completing that then I enrolled onto my PhD. You mentioned there weren't a lot of women on the course, yes. why do you think that's the case? So in the po uh, when we were doing the masters, there was myself and one other girl, and we came through on the undergraduate course as well. And I, I mean, I think it's a problem that stems from a much younger age, um, and that's why in the outreach work that I do, it's trying to speak to, to to younger children to make them more aware that you know technology and and you know STEM and STEAM subjects they're all applicable and everything is you know open and we need people like you to come through so I think it's an issue that starts at a much younger age but you then see it carry on later in life as well um for some reason I think girls and you know they, they just don't see that technology is something for them and certainly wasn't pitched towards them back when I was doing the degree so I mean there was only just two of us at that point and uh, even when I went to the games conference although I did see some women it was disproportionate to the number of men you mm -hmm. know that were present so it's, it's something that's it is changing and the change is maybe not occurring as fast as we would like to see it but it is definitely happening but we just I think need to work harder to to also make people aware about these careers that exist and the career paths because I know when I was in school and looking at applying for places at university and so on, although you've got a guide careers, what are they called, guidance counsellor or something? Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they weren't really aware fully of, I mean, beyond sort of your traditional career paths that you can follow, they weren't aware of other opportunities that existed. And I think also the problem is that games has often been viewed with a very sort of negative lens. Um, you know, it's it's seen as something that's not, it's seen as something childish, it's not seen as something that, you know, it's a t way, way of wasting time and so on. So it's always suffered from a very negative stereotype over the years. Um, and it's often used as a way to sort of blame, uh, you know, it's, it's a scapegoat to, to blame for society's ills as well. Yeah. So I think all of that kind of plays plays a part in it because, you know, when you discuss with your parents, and I know, uh, when I was discussing career paths and so on, you know, your parents do, you, you do ask them for advice and guidance and the games, I mean, back then, certainly it wasn't a thing that, you know, yes, this is a great opportunity, go for it. You know, it's more like, I think you're going to be wasting your time and there's nothing much that's going to come from it. Um, I'm glad that I was in that position where I could turn around and say, well, actually, you know, all that time that I spent playing games, it did come in, come in useful. But um, so I think it's, it's a multifaceted problem. And uh, it needs to be definitely tackled and addressed at a much younger age in schools, um, because by the time they even come into secondary school, it's too late to change people's attitudes that mm -hmm. exist. You know, and I'm very sort of conscious of that fact because I've got a son and a daughter, and my daughter's three and a half. But I'm very aware that you know I don't want her to feel that there's something that she can't do or that's not open yeah, to her. Um, so you know, when my son's playing the game, you know, she gets equal sort of playtime as well and uh, there is one switch at the moment but it's a case of they have to learn to share it mm -hmm. and more often than not they work cooperatively to actually play play the game so you know so I want to make sure that she's also aware that you know technology and all these things it's not just the boys field you know it's, it's for women too so she's interested in it and it's something that I want to make sure that I help to sort of fuel that interest further. Were you ever daunted about going into the industry giving everything you've just said? 
No, I wasn't actually. I wasn't. And I think part of the credit there lies actually in the way that my parents have brought me up, but specifically my mum. You know, she's been a very sort of positive influence and she's always had that sort of outlook or view that, you know, you can do anything that you want as long as you put your mind to it and put the hard work in. So I've never had sort of any sort of self-doubt. And my experiences in the industry, for the most part, have been positive. I think, you know, I mean, I, I have suffered from uh, imposter syndrome as well. But I think that's more to do with sometimes, you know, just being in awe of the people who have had the opportunity to work with. Yeah. And, um, and I think irrespective, possibly, of gender, I think a lot of people would have maybe maybe experience that maybe not I don't know um but you know my experiences have been positive and that's something that I want to sort of pass on as well and and use that to to showcase that to to help sort of address the numbers and the issues that exist. Why did you choose Romana to go into teaching rather than actually developing and designing games themselves? Um that's a good question uh I think I've always enjoyed teaching I've always enjoyed being able to sort of share my experiences and help to help to inspire others and so I felt that you know with trying to by seeing sort of this underrepresentation, I feel that by being an academic you know it's something that I can actually positively affect change in because what I do allows me to go out and not only speak to people but also then try and use things as, that I do as part of my teaching to to run things like workshops you know, I've, I've worked in the industry for a couple of years as well. I really enjoyed my time. And uh, in fact, the one thing I loved about industry was it moves at a much faster pace than academia does, um, <laughs> which was great, you know. Um, but also, I think it offered, like, it gave me a bit of street cred as well, because often when I go to schools, you know, they'll ask, um, did you work on GTA or did you do this? And first of all, I'm thinking, like, you're too young to have played GTA to begin with. But, uh, you know, the... the but when you tell them that you've worked on, on, on different types of games and so on, you know, it, I think that experience gave me a much more sort of rounded profile. And, um, but teaching is something that I've always in, in, enjoyed and it's something that, you know, I, I find pleasure in because I'm able to sort of help guide students as well, sort of when they come in from first year and by the time they leave as well. So that's why I thought it's, it's, it's the right fit for me. So if I was 18 years old, just left school, was going to join the, the video games program at the university, what sort of stuff would I learn? What would you teach me that, um, that I can go into industry and be a well-rounded video games designer? So, well, you know, at GCU, we do offer, our, the gaming degree covers the three main disciplines. So there's software development, there's art and animation, and there's design as well. And graduates or students that come onto the, the course and then graduate, they are provided with sort of all the experiences and the skills that they would need in order to pursue a career in gaming. So, you know, they, they learn about things like in terms of design, we, we teach them things about the psychology of the player as well. Okay. Um, we, I mean, narrative is one of the things we teach them, but through the four years or through the three years actually of the course, they have these integrated projects as well, which allows them to work with, that's where all three disciplines come together and they work together in a small team. So it's very reflective sort of of a studio environment and it allows them to sort of build their portfolio further as well. So we, we, we actually, the graduates who end up leaving are quite sort of 
they're very robust and they're very sort of rounded mm -hmm. in, in what they have to offer. And I mean, our former graduates have gone on to work for companies like Guerrilla Games, Rockstar, um, Sega, Electronic Arts, you know, oh, our alumni. It's Absolutely, you know, they're big companies. And also um, what we've heard from employers as well is that, especially on sort of software development, is that, you know, the, the skills that those graduates pick up are transferable skills as well. So if some of them don't end up in the games industry, they can end up in other sectors as well. And, you know, they, they, they find that those graduates are far more flexible. Um, so they've got greater appeal. As well as a lecturer at the university, Romana, you're mm -hmm. also a critic and a commentator about video games. You've spoken mm -hmm. with the BBC and the New York Times. And recently you spoke with the Washington Post about how religion is represented in video games. So big question, how is religion traditionally portrayed? In this medium? I mean religion's always been a contentious hotbed topic and um, games generally tend to tend to avoid going into to great detail or depth when it comes to religion. I mean narrative driven games have explored this concept of good and bad and as a character you know you, you go through the motions of questioning choices that you make and so on and games tend to be very sort of rich in symbolic imagery as well as sound and they tend to engage various aspects of sort of culture in the games and you know over the past few years we've seen that sort of the narrative that's starting to come through in games has matured the writing's matured mm -hmm. um, advances in technology have allowed games to explore things which they weren't able to do before and they are addressing more difficult topics but religion is one of the ones that it's, it gets left by the wayside. So games will, they'll maybe allude to religion and they do so by using things, you know, like the environment or the way the characters are dressed uh, in order to convey this. But often those types of religions or those types of characters are othered in games. So they're, you know, the, the bad guys, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and their uh, portrayal or representation isn't a positive one. So that's typically the problem that's existing in games. I think if you look at games like Call of Duty, for instance, yeah, uh, you know, they, they, they won't, I mean, the, the landscape where these games take place, you know, automatically in the mind of the player, you're in the Middle East or, you know, and the bad guys tend to be Muslims. And, uh, you know, so automatically you're, you're reinforcing certain types, stereotypes that exist out there uh, that we've seen time and time again in media. And these tend to come through. So, and those depictions are, inaccurate as well you know and um i think that whole area needs to be readdressed and the conversation uh needs to take place and how do we actually change this and i think what's interesting as well is instead of focusing purely on religion it would be interesting to have characters who who depict different types of faith and also showcase sort of the you know the wide spectrum of people that exist within different faiths as well so i mean i'm muslim but you know within the faith of islam you've got a whole range of people that exist mm -hmm. um you know and they all look different you know they, they'll dress differently i mean there's a difference in culture that exists so i think what's interesting is to showcase these types of characters because you know when we go out and about we all dress differently as well but you know the the religious part i mean certainly for myself like it's not something that i wear you know front and center and say when you first meet me that i'm a muslim and this is this is me, you know, that's something that you'll learn by sort of getting to know me as a person. And so wouldn't it be great if games had characters where you learn more about them, their motivations, what drives them, 
and develop a deeper understanding for the actions that they take. Um, and you, you know, you learn about their faith as you sort of go along, you know, and it'll give you a much more um, complete understanding. That would, that would sort of not only help, it would help to provide a better understanding and tolerance for different types of people in groups that exist out there as well. Because if you're constantly playing that same track over and over and over again, you know, it's broken and you're not really doing anything to address issues in society as well. And, you know, games have been used. They, they, they provide a means for tackling societal issues. So wouldn't it be great if we could help to develop a better understanding of humanity as well? I mean, that, that, that would be a, you know, a really positive use of, of games. Um, so, I mean, I think that there have been instances recently, I mean, Overwatch was one example of a game where um, they had this female character, Anna Amari, and she's an Egyptian sniper. She wears a hijab. So automatically there's a lot happening, you know, just, yeah. just in that. But seeing that type of character was definitely a welcome and refreshing change because it didn't play on any sort of female stereotypes that have existed before in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, very sort of overtly sexualized characters. Yeah. And although the game doesn't really go into her faith and so on, wouldn't it be great that, you know, if more and more games started to offer diverse types of characters, um, you know, and that way we can maybe see games starting to address all these difficult issues, but also depict them a bit more accurately as well. And I think part of the problem is that the teams or the people that are in the industry who are making these games, you know, they're, they're still by and large a particular group of people. Um, and I think what we need is greater diversity in the industry itself. And so by seeing greater diversity there, we will be able to see different types of experiences being captured in games as well. So changing this perception of, of religion in video games is it as simple as, for instance, say a AAA blockbuster title having a main character who is a religious person rather than mm -hmm. just othering them, as you mentioned earlier? It would be like trying to... So it's important to, I think, understand that, you know, you don't want to create a game where you're ticking off boxes for the sake mm -hmm. of ticking off boxes, you know. Um, so you don't want to say, well, okay, great, I've got a character in there that's, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a minority, right, and I'm depicting this faith, so, okay, great, excellent. Um, you know, because what you're doing there is then a disservice, uh, not only to, you know, people of that faith and so on, but also to the people who are playing your games, because, I mean, audiences have diversified since when games initially came about. And, you know, and the types of people who are consuming games and so on is very, very different to what was generally uh, the case back 10 years ago. So I think when you're, when you're making games, I think the question you want to ask yourself as well is like, what are you hoping to achieve in, in doing so? You know, what are the experiences that you want to capture? Um, what is the story that you want to tell? And then in doing that, try to create a character who's very rounded and believable. Um, and that's where it's very important to have different voices on your team because they can speak to these experiences. So a game, you know, it wasn't a triple A game by any stretch of the imagination. It was an indie game and it was out a few years ago. And I've spoken about it before because for me, it was a very powerful game and it's called Bury Me My Love. Okay. So I don't know if you're familiar with the game. No, but I'm not. Okay, so the way the game plays out, and it's one that I also use in, in my module as well, is um, it plays out as a series of conversations, like a WhatsApp message. Okay. Um, so that's the interface and so on. And it uh, documents the experiences of the refugee crisis 
in Syria and people migrating. And so you're playing as the husband. So you're seeing this conversation transpire between the husband and wife. And she's trying to, you know, to flee uh, from Syria and she's trying to make it to one of the safe countries. And uh, it's a very sort of jarring experience because, you know, you'll go for maybe an hour or two and you won't hear anything from, you know, from your wife. And you're sort of wondering, like, is she okay? Is she safe? Did she make the border crossing? You know, what she found out? And so on. So the experiences in there are very, very real. And I think it's a game that provides, you know, a, a great insight into the plight of refugees as well. And, you know, you, you really get a feel for this whole life and death scenario and, you know, the perils of the journey and what you know, their face with. So um, I thought that was, you know, a great game. And the reason is because the people who were making it were able to speak to these experiences and it felt, it felt compelling and it felt very real. Um, so it's a game that I often say that, you know, if, if someone hasn't played it, they should play it because, you know, I mean, you wouldn't expect like a WhatsApp conversation to be a game, but again, you've got choices to make in there as well. And these choices have an outcome on what happens to, to that character. So again, you know, the, the topic itself was very different. The characters in it are diverse, very different again. And um, for me, it was a, a game in recent times, which was absolutely fantastic and very, very powerful. What platform is it available on? I think it's out on the Switch as well, but I played it on mobile. And I think for me, it was best played on mobile because, you know, WhatsApp uh, works well on mobile as well. So that's why I found it really good. But I mean, there is a mode in the game that allows you to speed things up so you're not playing it in real time mm -hmm. um, if you want to get through the whole thing quicker. But I think it's best experience when played in real time to really get that um, uh, emotional experience across. Excellent. Well, there's my first payday purchase thing. <laughs> my love, we sure to, to get that. You, you mentioned that earlier, Romana, about the representation of women in video games and certainly i know th things are things are changing but in a lot of cases they're, they're overly sexualized now i picked out a couple examples from from games i've played personally i looked at uh, lara croft from the tomb raider series and i remember the the front cover from tomb raider when it came out in the playstation i think it must be 1995 1996 and mm -hmm. without wishing to sound crude she really enormous boobs anatomically yep. impossible. I'm looking as well at Tifa Lockhart from Final Fantasy VII, <laughs> the same. And then there's Quiet from Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. I've actually started uh, replaying that. Very good game. But she's scantily clad, cavorts and gyrates in front of the player. I think that's quite typical of a lot of Hideo Kojima's, <laughs> uh, the way he depicts women. But why is this the case? Why are women portrayed overtly sexually in some video games? So, I mean, yes, uh, I think Lara Croft is probably one of the more famous examples. And um, I think over the past few years, I mean, things are changing, but they haven't moved on enormously. You know, you're still seeing those overtly sexualized uh, female characters in games. And the thing is that, you know, I mean, we talk about representation of women in games, but just by having a female character, it doesn't necessarily mean that that representation is going to be, you know, a positive one. Mm -hmm. It often plays to all these stereotypes. And part of the reason for that is, is that the people, and it touches on to what I said earlier, is that the people who are making these games are still, by and large, not women. And it's, it's still a very male-dominated industry. And the people who are making these games are oftentimes, you know, when they're designing characters, they're designing based on things, you know, that they like 
that they want to see that they enjoy so um you know that's that's part of the problem i think when you look at the industry it's uh, things are changing like i said i mean uh, at the recent sort of sony press conference for the playstation 5 you know the lineup of games that were showcased were very very different to what we have seen in the past so we had mm, i i'm I would probably go, go out and say, if memory serves me well, we didn't actually have any of these stereotypes being played upon when we saw female characters. There was also a diverse range of characters as well. Um, so it was mostly, if it, it was mostly underrepresented groups that were coming through in the games that were uh, were shown. Um, there was also a game about cats, uh, which people are incredibly excited about. So you know, so so things are changing, but. It's an overhaul, you know, it's like a complete change that we need in the industry, but it goes even beyond, like, before the industry. So we need, uh, like I said, you know, if we start changing the minds and thoughts of children from a young age, and we see that carried on through sort of university and then going into the industry, you know, we'll start to see games that are more reflective of not only the audiences we're consuming them, but also the people that are making them as well. It's a shame in some cases because the characters that I mentioned, they're, they're heroic characters. They're, they're yes. interesting to play as and it feels as though that, that sexuality is detracting from the, the more positive aspects mm-hmm. of their character. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, they are, you know, Lana Croft is a very strong character. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, the last Lara Croft that came out, if you look at that game cover compared to you know the first Lara Croft that came out there's been a, a significant change you know it's not she's not as scantily clad mm-hmm. um you know and it's a much more deeper deeper and psychological dive into her as a character and how she came to be so again it's changing and as the industry matures and you know as the people coming through you know as we see different voices coming through we'll see that there's you know, a better representation of the audiences that are being served because these are the types of people who will be advocating for, for, for things to change. So it does, I think, in some instances, take away from the positives and especially when you're trying to create positive role models for, if we're talking specifically about women, you know, young girls who are wanting to come into the industry and so on, um, it needs to be a place that feels welcome to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've seen, I mean, we're talking about characters, but I mean, even if you look at conferences like E3 you know you would have your booth babes hanging about and for someone who's been to E3 you know as if you're trying to be taken seriously and then you've got these women who are you know scantily clad and dressed you know people automatically assume that either you're part of that or you don't belong there or you know or you just ended up being in the wrong place um, and maybe you were supposed to be at something, you know, a different. Group. So it's hard, you know, when you're going to these conferences and you're trying to speak to people and being taken seriously, and then you're seeing women standing right next to you who are wearing nets to nothing, um, you know. And they've, they've tried to do away with that now, but like I said, it's it's a problem that's across the industry. It's not just, I mean, characters are part of it, but if we start seeing the change there, we start seeing the change with the industry. I think overall we'll see the shift taking place. What about depictions of men in video games? Is there still an element of male characters being a, a Duke Nukem-esque, muscle-bound anti-hero with a, a wicked sense of humour? I, I mean, it, it, it still exists, doesn't it? Because of, like I said, you know, the, 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 the creators of these games, the, the, the men who are making them, the guys that are making them are... I mean, I don't know if that's how they <laughs> perceive themselves to be or would like themselves to be, you know? Um, but... 
so you do see you do see that i mean uncharted one of the games that i really enjoyed you know nathan drake felt oh, very much like a he felt like a male lara croft yes um uh you know and although he didn't have those big bulging muscles but he still felt very much like a here's your hollywood a-lister coming through you know uh that sort of charm and so on and so so you do tend to see that again the shift is sort of moving away but you know i think we have to keep in mind i mean i think the industry is what 30 40 years old now so it has gone through lots of different changes and it's seeing that shift but people within the industry are also more vocal about this change that needs to occur and take place and they're more supportive of it i mean if you look at other mediums like the film industry and so on which have been around for a lot longer you know they're still suffered and plagued by these problems so it is happening, it's slowly happening, but you know, at least it is happening and it's moving in the right direction. But until, like I said, you know, until the workforce diversifies, you'll you'll find that it's harder to see that change coming through. And also I think with AAA games as well, there's a lot of other things that factor into the decisions that are made about the games that are being made. And a lot of it's driven by, you know, the, it's, it's a money maker, isn't it? So mm -hmm. it's what's going to bring in the big bucks whereas indie games are taking more chances you know and and i find that that's the more sort of exciting and creative medium to be in and they are tackling uh, difficult subjects as well you know and they're talking about personal experiences because the people who are making them are are uh, you know it's, it's different voices that are coming through there so i mean bury me my love was you know an indie game there's also other ones like that dragon cancer which speaks about the experiences of um, a family where their child was, you know, suffering from cancer. So when people think of games, they don't think that these are the types of stories that are being told. They're automatically assuming that it is, you know, your big shoot 'em ups mm -hmm. or the football games and so on. But, you know, there's this whole other part of the industry that exists. And that's, for me, the really exciting space. We're seeing video games criticised in the same way that films, music, television is criticised. Are we at a stage now where we can say that video games are art? <laughs> um, that always comes up uh, and it always keeps coming up video games are art I don't think there's any question about it and it's people's acceptance of it as well as I think educating people about what the industry actually is it's not something that's that's childish it's something that I mean if you the, the recent show that came out on Netflix High Score I think it's, um, I mean, it gives you an overview of, you know, the industry and how it's evolved and so on. But I think the important part of that uh, documentary is that it shows or it gives voice to the makers of these games, but it shows you uh, the complexity as well of what goes into a game. So it's not just the case of, you know, I'm going to throw a few characters in here and that's it. You know, there's, there's AI that exists, there's, you know, programming elements are complex, the design is complex, so it's not something that a child can just sketch in a piece of paper and you press, so, you know, you've got a game. So I think games on the whole has been a very misunderstood industry and I think the more that we sort of talk about it and the positives of the industry and how games are being used, uh, you know, across a range of industries as well, I mean, it's been used in education, it's being used in health application. Um, it's being used in more serious contexts. So it's breaking down barriers and misconceptions of what people understand and believe games to be. 
Romana, that was absolutely brilliant talking to you. A big video games fan, so it was great to have a chat with you about it. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Craig. Really enjoyed that. Excellent. I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into the show, and I do hope you'll join us again soon. We'll be chatting with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us from. Leave us a review while you're at it as well, please. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been the Common Good Podcast.